Welcome to the Roots of the Spirit podcast. I'm your host, Spirit Taufik. I'm a social justice passionista and daughter of the civil rights movement. This podcast is my commitment to serve as an intergenerational bridge and galvanize change by having honest conversations about identity, the social construct of race, racism, and social justice. Welcome to Roots of the Spirit. This episode is dedicated to Reverend Clark B. Olson. Reverend Olson was a white minister who traveled to Selma, Alabama in 1965 after he heard Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s appeal for clergy to join the efforts of nonviolent civil rights activists in Alabama. King was calling for a peaceful protest in response to the Bloody Sunday protest that took place two days earlier on March 7, 1965. And there were 300 protesters led by Hosea Williams, John Lewis, Albert Turner, and Bob Mance. They gathered at Brown Chapel AME Church in Selma and proceeded through town to the famous Edmund Pettus Bridge. At that point, the number of marchers swelled to 600 as they crossed the span from Selma toward their date with destiny, as described. So at the end of the bridge, there were Alabama state troopers. Marchers were ordered to disperse, and the troopers threw gas canisters into the crowd. They were on horseback. They beat the marchers with billy clubs, and John Lewis, our Congressman John Lewis, was brutally attacked and was hospitalized after the assault. So Bloody Sunday was a critical turning point in the civil rights movement. And one of the key elements is the media and the fact that the world had visual representation of the racism that was going on in the United States, galvanized the forces for voting rights and increased support. It actually became a landmark foundation for a successful campaign culminating with the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. To learn more about Bloody Sunday, I'm going to put a link, which is where I derived my description from, to the National Park Service Selma to Montgomery National Historic Trail website. So once in Selma... Reverend Olson joined other ministers who had come to town to support this cause. As he and some colleagues made their way to Brown Chapel, his friend Reverend Jim Reeb was attacked and murdered before his eyes. Reverend Olson later had the courage to testify and point out the killers, which put his own life on the line. Reverend Clark Olson died January 21st, 2019, which is Martin Luther King Day. He died of heart failure at the age of 85. To honor Reverend Clark's sacrifice, contribution, and legacy to the movement, I spoke to two of his dear friends. We'll first hear from Jeff Steinberg, who is the executive director of Sojourn to the Past. Sojourn to the Past is an empowering academic immersion journey that takes students far beyond the classroom. Students retrace the path of the modern civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s across five states in the American South, visiting homes, churches, public buildings, and monuments where defining moments disrupted, changed, and continued to shape-shift the fabric of our nation. Students also have the golden opportunity to spend time with those whose lives were touched most deeply by the civil rights movement. On that note, we'll also be 
having a conversation with Minnie Jean Brown Tricky. Minnie Jean Brown Tricky is one of the Little Rock Nine who desegregated Central High School in 1957. Side note, she's also my mother. <laughs> and she's a core root-spondent of the Roots of the Spirit podcast. So what that means is she's a scholar that will be chiming in periodically because she's just such this walking encyclopedia. And she's also a speaker on Sojourn to the Past. And they both were friends and worked with Reverend Clark Olson for many, many years. And they, together with some other Sojourn to the Past community family members, attended Reverend Olson's Celebration of Life two weeks ago. And I wanted to talk to them about his legacy, what he meant to them, and what he went he meant to uh, his family and us as a nation and his legacy that we can learn so much from. So again, I want to dedicate this episode to Reverend Clark B. Olson. Jeff Steinberg, I just want to thank you so very much for coming on the Roots of the Spirit podcast. We've known each other for many, many years, and I thought it would be cool just to chime in about how we met and my recollection of our first time meeting and your recollection of how our families became connected. To be on your podcast with you, my sister, is a total treat and a total pleasure for me. So I am truly touched and honored that you would ask me. Thank you. Thank you very much. I will go back to when I was 20 years old. It was probably a year after I moved to the United States. My mother, Minnie Jean Brown Tricky, my little sister Layla, and myself moved to Maryland, and we lived there a while before I was ever introduced to your organization, Sojourn to the Past. I'm not quite sure how you became acquainted with my mother, and I'll save that for you to tell, but I remember I was 20 years old when I first took the Sojourn to the Past trip. So with that being said, I'm going to hand it over to you, and can you give an overview of Sojourn to the Past? What inspired you to create this absolutely phenomenal organization that's going strong and reaching thousands and thousands of young people. Uh, I was a teacher for 14 years at a high school out here in California in the Bay Area. And my last year at the high school, I just wanted to take 30 kids from my own class into the Deep South. It took me about a year to write, to research. When I presented it to the school, I took 100 the first year. And I realized really quickly, this was not just for me. This was for any student who wanted to be involved. Honors kids, struggling students, on the first trip, and what really struck me was we were at the Lorraine Motel looking at where Dr. King was assassinated, and a young woman who was a struggling student, she had tears coming down her face. And the San Francisco Chronicle, the major newspaper out here, came for the full seven days and did stories each day, and they put her picture on the front page. And it was so defining for me, her response to what she was seeing. What happened was prior to the trip, the San Francisco Chronicle had put out an article about what we were about to do. And they said, if anybody wants to donate to help kids who cannot afford it. Well, the article comes out on a Wednesday. On Thursday, I check my box because I'm teaching at the high school. And there's five letters from people I don't know and about $100. Friday, there's 25 letters and $2,000. 
Monday, the following Monday, is another 40 letters and $3,000. About $30,000 came in to help kids and letters from all over. So I knew we were onto something special. Then when we traveled, the, the best part was the travel piece. In preparing kids for the experience and then going and meeting icons. So the whole idea was we go into the deep south and we trace the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s. We meet icons who help define what this country should be. People who I actually call the real founding fathers and founding mothers of this country who believed in real freedom, unlike Washington and Jefferson were slave owners. These are people who define what this country stands for. And meeting them and then discussing the themes of nonviolence, personal courage, not being a silent witness or silent to injustice, that language is a form of violence. It has changed my life as an educator. So I left my, I took a leave of absence from my job the following year after seeing how successful this was. The district I taught in has never given a teacher more than a two-year leave. They cut you loose after two years. They gave me seven years in a row, and then they said, please resign. And so jump 19 years now. We've done 95 trips. We've taken 9,400 people, and we are in many communities around the country. We're mostly in California. We take students from Ohio. This year, we're taking students from Oregon. We've taken students from New York, Louisiana. Uh, we have a group from Boston that comes. And so we don't market or solicit. They contact us. And so I'm really proud of the fact of what we've done. But my favorite stuff is becoming friends with people who I taught about as a history teacher, including your wonderful mom, which leads me to how I met you. I wrote Elizabeth Eckford, asking her if she would meet the first group. Elizabeth Eckford, one of the Little Rock Nine. Yes, and kind of her picture is very defining, one of the top 100 photos of the 20th century where she's being screamed at by a white woman on her first day of school or a white student on her first day of school. Well, I asked Elizabeth if she would meet my group, and she said, no, this is the first group I was going to bring. Then I called her a second time, would you meet? She said, no, she doesn't do this. So then I decided, what do I have in my arsenal that might make her meet? So I had all... I was teaching 150 kids at the time, five classes of 30. Every student wrote her a letter asking her if she would meet. That's awesome. And Elizabeth wrote, called me back and said, I can't turn down young people. Oh, that's so beautiful. She met her first group. She was stunning how she met them. She was lovely. She was vulnerable. She was real. And she met that first group. And then a few weeks later, she calls me and she invited me to go to the White House to the gold medal ceremony that the nine were were receiving, the highest honor a civilian can receive. And when I said to her, yes, I want to go. Thank you. Yes, yes, yes. Then I said, but why would you invite me? We've only met once. She said, I spoke at Central High School recently. It was open to the whole school to come. It was voluntary at the time. The whole school was invited. And she said, you know how many people showed up to hear me speak? She said, 12. Wow. She said, nobody cares. Well, she said, you're doing something to make people care, and I'd love you to come. So it was such an honor to be there. As a matter of fact, I take pride. I was the last person to leave the ceremony. I did not want it to end. (laughs) I wanted it to continue and keep going. So the ceremony was amazing. Well, I went up to a woman that night at at the reception named Minnie Jean Brown Tricky. And I said, I'm doing this thing. I've done one trip. I'm taking kids into the South. I'd love you to meet. And Minnie Jean is so kind. said, oh, it sounds really interesting. Thank you. And then she had to go on to their business. And she <laughs> blew me off in a beautiful, kind way. <laughs> 
<laughs> Her two daughters heard what I was talking about. The lovely Layla and the incredible spirit who I'm talking to right now. And we started dialoguing and they said, you really do this? I said, yes. Could we come? Absolutely. So my recollection is you and your sister came on. It was like the second trip. That was the second trip? The second trip. Wow. Your mom had met. We brought your mom in to meet the students, even though she didn't come. She had spoken to them and she still, she loved what we were doing, but she didn't know me very well. So the story your mom tells that I love as you and Layla went home after the trip and you said, mom, you have to be part of this. And I always start like a fishing net and reel her in, you and Layla. <laughs> I don't remember that, but I do remember being like, wow, riveted. That's amazing because I complete, how did I skip over the White House and the Congressional Gold Medal? That's where we met. Well, the hilarity is your mom just told the story this weekend because we are at Clark Olson's Celebration of Life Service. And she said, she said, I have six kids. They all play different music. She says, my boys were playing uh, whatever is their type of music. They were playing hip-hop type of music loud out of the room, and Leyland Spirit were playing Dr. King's speeches. Blasting it! <laughs> Mountaintop and Drum Major for Justice. After I got off Sojourn to the Past, Drum Major for Justice was blasting through our house. But I want to go back a bit. If you can paint a picture for those folks who are totally unfamiliar with Sojourn to a Past, from a logistical standpoint, the route, specific, significant civil rights and heritage sites you visit, and who are some of the speakers that you engage the students with and the curriculum can you talk about the curriculum because uh, the purpose of roots of the spirit is to have honest conversations but i want there to be an action piece and the action piece which we'll talk about later is how people can become involved with sojourn to the past and honor clark olson's legacy also the curriculum which is so key because education is at the heart so take it away and give us a a snapshot of the journey I will. A little misnomer is that we are a travel organization. I call us a civil rights anti-racism organization. We want to fight against racism. So September through December, our organization, mainly led by teachers and myself, we do about 200 presentations about the civil rights movement to schools all over the country. From there, those who are not interested, and we talk to about a thousand young people a day as we do these presentations, those who are not interested have learned more than they ever have about the civil rights movement talking about the real founding fathers and founding mothers. Those who are interested, give us their name and phone numbers at the end of the presentation. They sign up for the immersion program, which is the travel piece. So when we began, we we go to Atlanta, Montgomery, Selma, Birmingham, Alabama, Hattiesburg, Mississippi, Meridian, Mississippi, Jackson, Mississippi, Little Rock, Arkansas, and we finish in Memphis, Tennessee. So in Atlanta, the first lesson we do in Atlanta is a three-hour lesson-ish on the Little Rock Nine, because the first speaker they have is the incredible Minnie Jean Brown, your mom, a mentor to me. I call her a sage. She's the queen of sojourn. She's on every trip <laughs> for so the full cute. seven the queen days. Of sojourn. She is the queen. That's and she's right. on every trip for the full seven days. Can anybody imagine anyone who is 77 years old? who wants to travel with 100 high school kids over 90 times. I always tell her, I'm like, mother, are you okay? You sure this is? And she comes back energized. I'm telling you, it's young people who give her so much energy. She's made me a better educator. She's made me a better person. I just, I adore her. I love her. She is so dear to me. We meet with Congressman John Lewis, who is the icon of the movement in so many ways, the conscience of Congress. He's been arrested for 
45 times. He's beaten on the bridge in Selma. He was a freedom writer. And he's an incredible soul who talks about redeeming the soul of America. That's why he meets with young people. And he has met 90 of the 95 groups I've brought. My running joke with Congressman Lewis is he gives every group two hours of his time. My older brother is the mayor of Sacramento. I can't even get him to give me two hours of his time. And John Lewis has done it 90 times. Uh, in Atlanta, we visit the the uh, Martin Luther King Center for Nonviolent Social Change. Uh, it is also run by the Park Service, and it's an incredible civil rights museum. We visit Ebenezer Baptist Church, and we finish at Dr. King's uh, tomb, and it's beautiful. And it says on his tombstone, the last line of the I Have a Dream speech, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. And he's buried next to his wife, who is an activist herself. Then we go to Montgomery. In Montgomery, Alabama, we go to the Civil Rights Memorial. And at the Civil Rights Memorial, we have studied the names of 40 people who are murdered from children to adults who are on the monument. The monument was developed by America's greatest architect. And I always tease when I say this. Who do you picture as America's greatest architect? Cutting the stone, putting the water over it. It's made of marble. Who's America's greatest architect? She did an incredible job. Hello. She also designed the Vietnam Memorial in Washington. Yes. She is an Asian woman, and everyone should know her name, even though they don't. Her name is Maya Lin. Now, the Southern Poverty Law Center commissioned the Civil Rights Memorial. Right above the memorial is the Southern Poverty Law Center Museum, led by the incredible woman named Leisha Brooks. She's an incredible, incredible soul. This year, we are adding in for the first time, we are adding in the Peace and Justice Memorial and the Lynching Museum, which we haven't been to, which is in Montgomery. So on the same day, we are going to be going to the, we're going to hear Congressman Lewis. We are going to the Peace and Justice Memorial, and then we'll finish at the Civil Rights Memorial. But I left out one more thing we did that you'll see how academic this is. We also go to the Alabama State Capitol Steps, and my colleague, one of the best educators I've ever been associated with who works with me, his name is Kenneth Mason. Ken does a lesson on Dr. King's Selma March that finishes on the Alabama State Capitol Steps. They read primary source material, they look at photos, they talk about the march, and then they finish by playing the end of Dr. King's Selma speech, which is, how long? Not long, because no lie can live forever. How long? Not, Not long. long. And the kids are doing the column response with Mr. Mason, which is beautiful. So that's Montgomery. Then we move on to Selma. And in Selma, we before we have seen any, and before we've gone out, we stay in hotels that have conference rooms. We set the conference room up like a classroom. It's called, we bring our own equipment. So we have a mobile classroom because we do lessons before we meet people, a la Minnie Jean and Little Rock. And Minnie Jean's our first speaker because she was young. She was their age. Her lesson is incredible what she shares with them. Well, in Selma, we do a lesson or before we go to Selma, we do the lesson. And then we go to Selma and our guide in Selma is the mayor of Selma, not really the mayor, but she's the mayor to me. Her name is Joanne Bland. Yes. And Joanne Bland is an incredible soul who knows more about Selma. She was beaten on the bridge at age 11. Her sister was 14. Her sister, I think, suffered multiple stitches on Bloody Sunday. We also meet a man who I want to make sure I mention. His name is Lawrence Huggins. Coach Huggins, as you know, was a school teacher, an a athletic man, and the school teachers were the first to walk out of their jobs based on what Sheriff Jim Clark and others were doing to repress people's equality, including not allowing them to vote. So, Coach Huggins meets us as well. Well, Joanne takes us all around. We go to Brown Chapel, which were the headquarters of the Selma March. 
we, we do a tour of Selma where we compare white Selma versus black Selma. And frankly, the town looks much like it did in the 1960s. And we will finish our day after hearing Coach's story and Miss Bland's story by crossing the bridge on Bloody Sunday. We finish crossing that bridge where young people make a commitment that voting is no longer optional. You have to vote because voting is power. Now from there, Two days after Bloody Sunday, or the next day after Bloody Sunday, rather, March 8th, Dr. King put out a call asking for people of goodwill if they would come to Selma. A thousand ministers or clergy rather meet the call, including 450 white ministers. Clark Olson is one of the white ministers who meets the call. He's a minister in Berkeley, California. He hears Dr. King make the announcement, we need people to come. And Clark is thinking, well, I got work to do, and I don't have a plane ticket. And someone from his congregation called and said, oh, we'll supply your plane ticket. And his board said, oh, Jess, you can put off your work. So he had no more excuses to think he couldn't go. So Clark Olson goes to Selma, Alabama on March 8th. So Clark actually arrives. He gets, here's the call March 8th. March 9th, he shows up. They were going to march his second day. The second day was called Turnaround Tuesday. They were supposed to march from Selma to Montgomery to honor the death of Jimmy Lee Jackson, who you cannot tell the Selma story and leave out Jimmy Lee Jackson. Jimmy Lee Jackson was a young man who was murdered in Marion, Alabama during a nighttime march. He was shot. By, by an Alabama state trooper protesting for the equality to vote. He dies a few days later. This is the, the genesis for the Selma to Montgomery march, not only to honor Jimmy Lee Jackson's death, but to say to George Wallace, who was the governor at the time in Montgomery, they're going to march to Montgomery and say, we demand the right to vote. So there's two pieces behind the march, honoring Jimmy Lee Jackson and honor, fighting for the right to vote. Well, when Clark Olson arrives, his plane had trouble. The second day march had already occurred. Dr. King did not march them past where the police were, and he turns them around. So it's called Turnaround Tuesday. Dr. King turned them around because had they kept marching, people would have been murdered this time instead of just beaten. On Bloody Sunday, 65 were injured and 17 were hospitalized, including Congressman John Lewis, who suffered a major, major concussion. So Clark Olson arrives late. He misses Turnaround Tuesday. He's at the church, Brown Chapel, and Dr. King says, I need as many of you to stay as you can. Would you go out to dinner and come back for a nighttime meeting? Clark Olson looks around to see who he knows, and he sees two friends. Clark Olson is a white minister from Berkeley. Orloff Miller is a white minister, and Jim Reeb is a white minister. They all go out to dinner. They eat at a restaurant called Walker's Cafe. It was an integrated restaurant. As they leave the restaurant to go back to the church to meet Dr. King, they decide to take the shorter route. They leave Walker's Cafe. They're walking back to the church. And walking back to the church, they take the shortcut, and three men see them, and they yell at them, hey, you white N-words. One of them has a club in his hand. Picture a sidewalk. Um, Clark Olson is on the sidewalk facing the wall. Orloff Miller is in the middle, and Jim Reeb is facing the street. Now, Jim Reeb and Orloff Miller have been trained because they had got there early and people were trained in their prayerful protection position. So imagine you go down in a prayerful position if you're about to be attacked with your hands over your head. Clark Olson was not trained because he showed up late. He didn't get the training. So as they're walking, a man with the club... He swings the club hard. His name is Elmer Cook. And Elmer Cook hits Jim Reeb right in the temple. Jim Reeb goes down. They beat on Orloff Miller. 
Carlson runs. As he runs, they catch up to him. He's not. He doesn't get very far, and they beat on him. But Carlson turns around, and he sees the killers because he did not go down in the prayer for protection position. They pick up Jim Reeb. They they walk him. Jim Reeb is, is groggy. He's mumbling. He's incoherent. They walk him to uh, the Boynton Cafe or Boynton Insurance Company to say, what do we do? They know they'll need money to take him to the hospital because there's, if you can believe, an entrance fee to go to the hospital. They get an ambulance. The doctor checks him out at the Selma Hospital and says, Jim Reeb is too severely hurt. You have to go to Birmingham. Birmingham is an hour and a half away. When they get him to Birmingham, a reporter interviews Clark Olson and says, would you want to come back to Birmingham? Would you want to ever come back to Selma? And Clark Olson, this gentle man says, of course. I would love to come back to a Selma where this couldn't happen. Mm. Jim Reap dies two days later. It is an amazingly powerful story. Clark Olson comes back. He comes back to Selma. He doesn't stay for the funeral because he's afraid he's next because he's the only witness that he knows about. He comes back for the grand jury and he testifies and points out the killers. And Clark Olson, with tears in his eyes, points out the killers of who killed his friend. Now, the men are found not guilty. And to this day, no one has ever been found guilty of murdering Jim Reeb. Do you know the whereabouts of the killers? They, they, they have all passed away. The latest one, the last one named Duck Hoggle, died this past year or so. Duck Hoggle, there were two brothers, the Hoggle brothers, H-O-G-G-L-E, and this man named Elmer Cook. Elmer Cook was the one at the club. That's who Clark Olson testified against. Now, the beauty of how I learned Clark Olson's story, his daughter, Marika, had done a CNN, she was a producer for CNN, and she she produced a story of her dad coming back to Selma for the first time in 35 five years. We're going to switch gears a little bit and we're going to head over and speak to Minnie Jean Brown Tricky about her experience. Hello, Minnie Jean. Thank you for joining us at the Roots of the Spirit podcast as you are one of the official core roots spondents of the show. So thank you for coming on. Thank you for asking me. I just had a wonderful conversation with Jeff Steinberg, executive director of Sojourn to the Past, who you know very well. He talked so fondly of you working with Sojourn to the Past for the past 19 years. Really what I want to talk about is Clark Olson and you, as well as Jeff, just came back from his celebration of life. And I want to talk to you about that. But I'm also interested, what's it like for you, not only as a sage, as he describes you, as, as a, a speaker on the trip, but you're also so intimately engaged with the students on the trip. What's it like for you? Well, my participation with Sojourn to the Past is directly related to the thousands of young people that I've interacted with and had the opportunity to meet and learn more with. So it's fascinating to me, and it's part of my personal intention to always be in a state of learning as well as teaching, teaching and learning perpetually. So that's, that's how it works for me. You receive letters at the end, and kids walk away with this unbelievable perspective on the civil rights movement, but they also get to see young people at the heart of it and at the at the forefront. And so I was just saying to Jeff, the 15 and 16-year-old Minnie Jean, could you have imagined that your life would take 
this trajectory? And what does it look like looking back at your 15 and 16 year old self in the eyes of these young people? Well, first of all, let me say that at 77, I look at the Little Rock Nine with a great deal of respect. And that respect grows every year. Um, I admired them. They're beautiful. Uh, They're just amazing kids. So that's how I feel about the Little Rock Nine, even at this advanced age. I could not have imagined that it would have the kind of significance that it had over time and how particularly now with complex political situations, both in our country and in the world, it's important for me to talk about being a young person. Because I think we are absolute examples of what young people can do. And we have all the images. So despite the fact that we are now all in our 70s, we have all those images of those beautiful kids we were. And it, it fit, it, so it has resonance uh, for people who grow up in a visual sort of TV screen world to have those images and be this person with the sort of wisdom and the, after thinking about it for more than half a century, uh, it just has really important meaning to me. And it seems to have important meaning meaning to the young people. So it's a good space to be in. Absolutely. Do you recall the first time you met Clark Olson? I do, actually. Clark came as a speaker on Sojourn, connected with the story of Selma. And he told his story to the group. And he was very emotional about it. Um, That made me cry. Why don't I ask you what your impression of when you first saw Clark? When I was talking to Jeff, I was saying that the first time that I went on Sojourn was when I was 20. So it's been a while. (laughs) I don't remember exactly what he said, but I remember the way that he made me feel. And I remember like my heart just pounding with empathy and compassion and sorrow and also just physically seeing a man tell his story and have that visceral reaction was really powerful for me. And he was so gentle. That's what I remember about him. He was so gentle. And then when all the kids came up to him after and hugged him, he was just so generous. So that's what I remember. That's what stands out. And and anytime subsequent years, seeing photographs, reading articles, seeing videos, that's that's the essence of how I experienced Clark Olson. And that's who he was. His contribution, I think, to the students was multifaceted. First, he had this horrible story. I'll use, um, when I was at his celebration of life, I opened with James Baldwin's quote, which says, United States history is more beautiful and more terrible than we know. And I think if we think about specifically Clark's story, horrible, horrible experience to have somebody smashed in the head right next to you. And then going to court and having the person be acquitted. I mean, it's the totality of that horror of United States history. It just tells the whole thing. And yet his telling of the story and his understanding of what happened, he'll ne- he, he, he didn't forget it. I mean, and he didn't forget it the same way as I never forget Little Rock. He cried every time he told the story. And sometimes I cry when I tell my story. So we have this terrible thing. But then his message 
oh my goodness, his message was specifically about kind of, I, I guess, I don't know what he would say, but the way I would say it is you get into this stuff without knowing what the outcome is. And it was a moment in time which he couldn't have anticipated. He was going down to be a clergy at Turnaround Tuesday with Dr. King, and this momentous, horrific thing happened to him. And to me, his, his, what he says, if I'm not free, then you're not free. A couple of things that he believes in. Because one of the things students kind of say was, oh, a white guy, why did you go? And I think that we have been denied how many white people participated in the civil rights movement. And Clark specifically said that it was about his freedom as well as the freedom. You know, he wasn't the savior who went to save the black people. He understood and stated with the students that it was his responsibility as well. And that's a very powerful lesson that all this freedom, justice, the responsibility belongs to all of us. So that was a that's a really important thing to tell young people. That's incredibly important. And how can we draw that message to today and provoke white people to see themselves as impacted by injustice? Well, I mean, if they don't see themselves, then that's a perfect example of profound intentional ignorance. That if people cannot see their relationship to others, you know, one of the things that I say about Central High School is that that desegregation crisis hurt all the children. It hurt the Black kids and it hurt the white kids. And if we can't figure that out, that these things hurt all our children, we're in serious trouble. You put me on to the book, White Fragility, and she talks about how white people will run from that. Well, they will literally move their families to certain neighborhoods so that they can, quote, avoid. And when I lived in Little Rock, Arkansas, I learned that the freeway was strategically so that white people can get to their neighborhoods and work and not have to interact with black people. Yeah, but that's the training. That's training, you see. Yeah, but there has to be an acknowledgement of this training on some type of high level for white people to feel accountable. Okay, but it also is about education. How do we get this way? We got this way because of laws. We got this way because we were helped to be this way and helped to segregate it segregate ourselves and each other through laws and policies. Yeah, it's a blueprint right to this moment. It's, I mean, that's what to me is the importance of this work of truth telling, because you're the queen truth teller of being able to look at the schematics and the path of the past to this present moment, because then it takes the fear and the blame and the guilt and all that. You can't use that as an excuse anymore. Well, I'm not sure. Like, I feel like if we knew that the government structured housing segregation and that it was policy and law, then we stop saying something like, uh, this is some kind of natural thing. So I heard that as recent as 
three days ago. Yeah, segregation so, is natural. That the way that the, the neighborhoods are configured is natural. That's just absolutely that's something not. to do with chemistry and biology. I was not like, wow. Oh, not at all. Structured, structured, structured. Oh no, you're preaching to the choir, but I'm just telling you that it's but ever so talking, present. But we're talking to the public, and my challenge is learn what happened. Learn what happened. We got to be educated. We got to know the freeways dif- divided cities. We got to know that the government persuaded and perpetuated segregation in housing. Do you recall the students' reaction to Clark Olson? Like, did they ask difficult questions? Because I don't know how many opportunities they have to spend, they being all multicultural children, youth, to spend with a white man who put his life on the line to fight for freedom for all. I'm just curious what the questions would be for him specifically. Our message is so universal that it applies to everyone. And I think he understood that. I mean, after all, he was a Unitarian minister. He had been trained in divinity school. He knew, I don't say that he calculated his message, but he knows how to deliver a message. I mean, in the same way I do, you really thoughtful about it, you're truth-telling as much as possible. I think young people recognize that. They respond to it. They recognize authenticity better than anybody else. You know, I work with kids in the third grade and the fifth grade, and they've got it covered. They do. They can sniff out phoniness or inauthentic aspects of our message really quickly. And so it's really important to be on it with truth as much as possible and have it be personal. When Clark would speak and he would cry, and I get it because sometimes I cry, his wife Anna said that Clark, when he's talking about it, he's on an ocean of tears because it was a sad thing. She uses the uh, concept, his heart was broken. And so obviously he has that sadness, but the broken heart, and I'm using my hands here, opening it up, expands our consciousness consciousness in some basic ways if we allow it to happen. And we become more authentic and more truthful because of that. And we also become more compassionate. So I'm my problem is that I'm seriously compassionate. And so was he. Compassion for those children that they got the right message, compassionate that they felt his emotion, and compassionate that they would go out and find out more. So that's the kind of person, that's what he did with kids. He gave them everything in that hour or so that you can to help them get it. Uh, Not preaching, not, not with your finger pointing, but I say, this is what happened to me for these reasons. And hope that they can pull one little piece out of it in their own lives. What is the legacy of Clark Olson? What can we learn today from his sacrifice? Well, his sacrifice, he didn't know that it was going to happen. So I'm just kind of trying to think about it right now. That's a hard question. Um, do what you have, what you think you should do, and you can't predict what's going to happen. So it's about an openness. So what, um, so I'll, I'll say kind of how I think about it. So when I'm talking to young people, I'm, don't say, 
oh, you've got to go march or you've got to do this or you've got to do that. It's there's so many things that are important for people to feel that they can be active about that. You, you just do it. And I think that was Clark. That was his that's his message that he went for the demonstration and this happened. And so in that sort of theme of history being more terrible, he had that experience. And what he proposed afterward is there's beauty in the learning about that kind of thing. And there's beauty in understanding that sometimes you go and do something and it turns weird and, and that, that that's the way to live. So you are so good at giving homework assignments. I'm going to put a little bit of a twist. What is your challenge to our listeners, those wonderful people who are joining the Roots of the Spirit movement? You know what I will do? I will compile a reading list of important books that people should be looking at right now. And you can put it on your Roots of the Spirit. How would that be? That's amazing. Yes. That's absolutely amazing because I because I do not know anybody on the planet. I think Morningstar, who is my older sister, is second in line to how the voraciousness of reading. <laughs> you guys are the most well-read people I know on the planet. And it's Nothing. not enough. It's not enough. Okay. But mama, oh my goodness, like unless we were full-time readers. <laughs> there's there are so, so many ways. I mean, I learned from the people I speak to at colleges and middle schools and elementary schools and the sojourn kids. I learn every day because I'm taking it in. I'm open to it. And I think that that's also an important thing is to be open to learning. And I'm not saying that people aren't open to learning. But when I say a lot of these things, we don't understand. We don't know what racism is. We don't know what oppression is. We're just all talking off the top of the tops of our heads. But there is thought and there are perspectives. And for me, since I don't know what I don't know, I'm out there trying to figure it out. I'm out there. That, that's important to me. So I'm going to do a little bit to close us out, a word association. One word. All right. First word that comes to mind. Sojourn to the past. Sojourn to the past. A creative. One word. (laughs) Sojourn to the past. Educational. Racism. Miseducation. (laughs) Education. Crucial. Mini Jean Brown Tricky. Uh, (laughs) I can't think of a word. Elder. Okay. (laughs) Clark Olson. Amazing. Thank you, Minnie Jean. Thank you so much for this beautiful interview, this beautiful tribute to Clark Olson and your dedication and commitment for years and years. You've touched so many young people's lives. It's something that will continue to grow and flourish in the young people in the next generation and the next generation. 